You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks and welcome to episode 12 of Let's Talk Photography. I'm your host Bart Bouchotts. Joining me today for our second Q&A show, we have um, a lovely panel of two of our golden oldies and one new voice. So uh, let's start, oh, I'll just do the alphabetically, it's probably easier. Antonio, welcome back. Hi, Bart. Thank you for having me. A pleasure as always. Do you want to quickly remind people where you hang out on the internet? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Antonio Rosario. I'm AM Rosario everywhere on Flickr and uh, Instagram. I'm back on Instagram, by the way. Twitter, but I'm part of uh, switchtomanual.com. Me and uh, my partner Tom, we teach photo workshops in Brooklyn and Manhattan, New York City. Um, cool. Yeah, I think he couldn't be here today. He's uh, he's a pastor, so he's in church. Sundays are yeah, the kind of special day for pastors. Yeah, there's also a very large um, uh, climate uh, um, protest today. Anti, not anti-climate. I presume not anti-climate. <laughs> It's it's happening in the city. It's going to try to be one of the largest um, climate demonstrations um, ever. Um, so I think he's going to that too. He's going for both of us. Since cool. I'm holding the fort for photography here, he's holding the fort for climate and awareness. And since he likes street photography, I imagine he's, he's killing two birds with one stone there. Yes, he's probably going to have a lot of great shots. I'm sure we'll put them up on our site. But yeah, we're switched to manual.com. So. Cool. Yeah. Stefan is also back with us. Hi, Stefan. Hello, Bart. Nice to be back again. And uh, if you want to find out about me, you can find me uh, under my name, Stefan Lassage, on Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Flickr. And uh, in case you, you've missed it, we also do a Dutch podcast, which is called uh, Tech45, which you can find at tech45.eu. Excellent. And that, that, that it, as fun a podcast as it is, it's not much use to people who don't speak Dutch. No, it isn't. Not no. Hello. Well, if you want to learn Dutch, I guess it's a technology-based way of doing it. Anyway, and, yeah, but... uh, we we have with us a new voice, although um, I think you've popped around in the community a few times. So, uh, welcome, uh, Conrad. Thank you. I'm really excited and uh, to to be a part of this episode, and thank you for having me. I'm delighted. And uh, can I ask you to pronounce your surname so I don't get it wrong? It's Dvoyak. And uh, where where could people find you online if they if they want to see your work um, or just see what you're up to? Oh well, in way too many places, unfortunately. Uh, but one of the places uh, that has links to all of the social networks that I'm a part of it's my website. Uh, that's Conrad Dvoyak. Let me spell that quickly for you: K O N R A D D W O J A K dot com. But it might be easier if the listeners just go to the show notes and probably uh, go on my website uh, from there. Yes, there will indeed be a link to everyone's links in the show notes. So that is definitely the easiest, which is over at lets-talk.ie, which is a good excuse to plug the website. Um, speaking of the website, so this is going to be our second Q&A show, um, although this is more comments than questions in some cases, but nonetheless, we'll call it a Q&A show. And if listeners would like to submit any comments or questions for future Q&A shows, they can go to lets-talk.ie forward slash photo queue. That's lets-talk.ie forward slash photo queue. And uh, with that, I think we should get stuck into our first question. And I use the term in its loosest possible sense. 
because I, I think it's really a comment. But anyway, uh, the wonderful Alison Sheridan of the Nocilla Cast Mac podcast hosted at podfeet.com sent us in a little missive and uh, apologies up front. I don't like reading out loud, but I'm going to have a go. Um, great show as always. Really enjoy, really learned a lot and love the different points of view. In particular, I resonate to the... For the love of all things, don't post every photo POV from Bart, and was also intrigued by the different views for what Flickr is really for. Uh, I'm glad you didn't do a two-minute version of the watermarking pros and cons. I'm really interested in getting this resolved in my head. My biggest problem is that my family members use my photos and don't give me credit for them. I know it sounds petty, but watching my mother-in-law hand a giant framed canvas of one of my artistic photos to her grandson with no credit to me just about killed me. I'm starting to watermark everything now, but I uh, look i look like a tool doing it on photos just for people. Oh, wait, sorry. But I look like a tool doing it on photos just of people for Facebook and such. So I can, ur- so I can argue both sides of this without anyone helping, with me, helping me. I don't want to watermark. I don't want money for my work. I want credit. And sorry, Alison, for reading that out so badly. Thank you for sending it in, though. So uh, we didn't want to do a two-minute version of the watermarking conversation, but now that we have a whole hour stretching it ahead of us, maybe we can have a go. Um, actually, very simple first question to get this going. Does I'll go around the panel. Does everyone do it or do they not do it? Antonio, do you watermark? I. It's not a yes or no for me. It Sometimes. depends. Sometimes I do. I'm, I, I lean lately. I lean towards not. Um, I, I do it occasionally. Okay. Stefan? Uh, I'm starting to do it for, for uh, some specific things. Like uh, if I go uh, to events and I take pictures for my blog, then I will watermark them. But if I shoot pictures for, uh, for family, I, I probably won't mark, uh, watermark them. Okay. And Conrad? Well, it's, it's not a really question yes or no for me. Uh, in general, yes, most cases, but I do it less and less, and even my watermarks become smaller and smaller. Okay, and uh, I do it pretty religiously on everything I share, but over the years, the trend is towards smaller, but still present. Um, actually, Antonio, you say sometimes, so that seems like an interesting place to kick off a discussion. Yeah, it. it again, it's, for me, I'm looking at... I mean, I make my money at photography, and having watermarks helps protect, you know, my brand in a sense, and myself, and having people take my pictures. And yet, um, I've my little history lesson here is I've been involved in stock photography for a very, very, very long time. When you know, when there was film, film days, and um, you know, there was no watermarking back then, essentially, because you sent transparencies to clients, and you know. The, you couldn't put a watermark on a you know piece of film, um, and it you know back then it didn't stop clients from you know using my pictures without my permission. Um, you know they would just um, scan the picture or copy it or, and, and use it. And so um, I didn't watermark back then. People still use my pictures, you know, and I have the ability to watermark now. But my personal preference is I do not like looking at watermarks. Like when I look at other people's pictures, and I mean, I love your pictures, Bart. I don't like your, <laughs> I don't like your watermark. But it's um, all the way it, at the bottom and teeny these days. It distracts me. It my eyes, it, you know, my eyes go to watermarks, and so, um, I guess my my point about bringing my my stock 
photography history is that that uh, um, I didn't deal with watermarks way back when, and it it I wasn't harmed by them. I mean, people mm-hmm. would use my pictures sometimes, but but you know, my agency would get you know we would find out. Uh, today, watermarks don't stop people from using my pictures. You know, especially now with Photoshop and Smart Fill, and you know the um, you know the uh, content aware fill now, yeah. you can do away with watermarks pretty easily, especially when they're in the corners there. Um, so, my general inclination is when I put pictures out in the world, I don't put watermarks on them. My agency still does. Uh, the pictures that I that I send to Getty. Uh, images hmm. when they send them to clients or when you go to their website those pictures are watermarked but that's also because that's to protect their interest too because they want to make money off of my pictures so um, they're out to sell the pictures I'm out to show the pictures so I do not like looking at them but that being said sometimes depending on where I'm showing a picture like for instance if a client does ask for a selection of pictures to look at from me I tend to send them a, a, a like a contact sheet, a digital contact sheet with my watermark on them because I do not want them to then use the picture without us finishing the negotiations on the price. Yeah. Um, so some so you know, and it's not always with money. Like it, it depends on like on a new website, I might put a put a, a watermark on. I used to put them on Instagram. I've stopped putting them on Instagram. Um, I know people copy pictures on Instagram and, and do it, but they'll do it. They'll just crop my picture without the watermark. And I do not like watermarks. My watermark part, by the way, is also, if I ever do it, is on the bottom left of my picture. Very faint and very small. So it is easy to crop out. But I can't stand watermarks that are directly in the middle of the picture. Um, so, again, it depends on what I'm doing with the picture. More times than not, I'm not doing it because I like people to see my picture without, without my name printed on it. Um, and I'm less worried about People might steal the picture, I'm sure, but I'm I'm not as worried about that now these days. It's going to happen, but you know. So why ruin a picture if it's going to get nicked anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's ways for me to like if I want to search for my picture, and you know, there are reverse image search engines that I could use to find out if my actually I did find out some of my pictures are being used on like weird Russian you know video game sites. I was like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> it's like sure, but but. Uh, Again, I like I like people to see the picture. Yeah. Cool, Conrad. You, I think you also answered with a, sometimes, which always sounds like a good place to start conversations. Yeah, well, I, I saw that question before in the show notes, um, and it helped me reflect my processes. And actually, I started when I started putting pictures online, like I don't know, fifteen or ten years ago. I remember that my watermarks were huge. I mean, it was everything about a watermark, not about a picture, and then. I started using them less and less, and right now, let's say 90% uh, cases, uh, I always, I, I put watermarks, uh, at least small, uh, but I, I share Antonio's approach, uh, I think we're on the same page here, that um, if everyone wants to use your picture, you know, it's easy to crop the watermark anyway. Um, and it doesn't make sense to put a big watermark, because then, as Antonio said, you get distracted. You see at the, you look at the watermark, not at the picture. Uh, and for example, I know myself when I when I browse uh, 500px or other websites, and I see there there is a beautiful picture, but uh, in front of that picture there is a huge watermark. I don't even you know I don't even bother to go into looking for that picture more than you know a couple of seconds. Uh, and I usually don't care about the picture anymore. Uh, I don't even I don't even 
care about the photographer because my approach is if a photographer cares more about his or her watermark and not not the art, uh, then it doesn't make sense for me to to waste my time uh, uh, investigating or let's say um, looking into into a photographer as an artist. So that's that's my approach. Cool, uh, Stefan. You said you were starting to. So that also sounds like an interesting. Yeah, because uh, uh, I also run a blog which uh, uh, handles everything about whiskey, and sometimes I, I, they invite me to press conferences where they uh, uh, show new products. And uh, when I take pictures, I've noticed that uh, uh, when looking at the pictures on Flickr, for example, there's no immediate link to the website. And uh, in order to maybe uh, drive some traffic from Flickr to uh, the website, I've started adding uh, a small uh, banner at the bottom of the picture, which uh, with a Creative Commons license and a link to the website. So maybe people will, if they see the pictures, uh, go and visit the, the website as well. But uh, in, in other cases, I'm mostly I, I won't use uh, watermarks, except maybe for a little uh, for a little Creative Commons banner like like you have on your pictures. But uh, I was wondering how you guys handle the, the instances where uh, in some cases, like you mentioned it before, they can easily crop out the, the little Creative Commons banner and reuse the images uh, without the banner. Uh, how do you handle things like that, that if it happens? Because uh, I'm starting to get uh, instances where that is happening. People cut off the, the watermark and uh, reuse uh, the images without uh, without credit, without nothing. They don't even ask it. They just cut it out. And So indeed, watermarks interesting but uh, if it's too easy to get on the way you know. my my sort of take on the watermarks is to use them as a carrot instead of a stick mm -hmm. sounds weird so i don't watermark to stop people using my image i watermark to make it easier for them to give me the creative commons credit that the creative commons license says they should give me so instead of expecting them to type it i'll just type it for them and make it easier uh but yeah it, it doesn't stop people being mean or naughty or whatever where you can stick in here a part that that goes with the not work safe one that's really in my head <laughs> um and i don't really know how what i would do if that happened because i guess it would depend on who it was who was doing it um it's not something i've had a problem with and i don't really use photography as a as a money raising scheme well so you know I, I would i guess it would depend on whether or not the person using my photo was making money off it probably and if they were i'd probably go and find myself an attorney and have at it but antonio since you do this for actually putting bread on your table i'm guessing you have a, a strong opinion yeah i mean again going back to the stock photography days of film when we used to send out pictures some sometimes we would wrap the slide up in a plastic um protector with little stickers on it saying if you break this seal uh you pay a certain amount of money because oh. um yeah, because then the plastic would actually sort of degrade the image a little bit just because it was plastic. And so if anybody wanted to copy that picture, they'd, they'd really have to take the slide out of the plastic container. And by slicing the, by slicing the uh, um, little sticker with the, uh, with the disclaimer on it, they would have to pay a certain amount of money. So but, this is the Microsoft approach. If you break a little seal, you, you've agreed to the license. Yeah, yeah. That you know, people ignored that sometimes or but we would check, you know, when we no, get the slides it, right? back. Yeah, you'd get back and you'd say, Okay, well you you know, you slice this and it says on it you pay a hundred and dollars for the use, you know, for what we call the comping fee. But um some photographer a while back was able to make a case um in court 
using his slides because sometimes when you again when you have to take the slides out, you had to actually slice the slide mount in order to get the piece of film out to print it. And they were like, "Well, we're not paying for this usage." And like, "Well, you slice the slide mount, and so you're paying for it." And they was able to prove in court that the slicing of the slide mount was an act of you know using the picture, and he was able to get a lot of money for that. And so he mentioned later on in the seminar that I took with him that by putting his watermark there on the corner, he was able to prove when someone cropped it out that that was very similar to slicing a slide mount, um, that there was an intent of usage. Um, so if someone was going to make money off of your your picture, and I'm not a lawyer, so mm-hmm. just saying but that out loud. Many of us are in my, different legal jurisdictions as well. Yeah. So. Yes, every country is going to have something different. I know maybe even every state in the United States has something different, but... You know, it's maybe it's possible to prove that if someone slices off your watermark or erases it, that they're showing some intent uh, um, of usage um, for themselves, and maybe in a court of law that could be found. But you know that well, it, it's very hard to claim that you accidentally cropped out someone's copyright information. Yeah, maybe maybe you can do it once to to some really not so smart judge, but maybe not the second time. But uh, I mean, that's the you know that's the idea of like you know putting the watermark across the middle of the picture because there's no way you can crop that out. So there's no way you can, you know. And if someone wanted to Photoshop that out, well, you know, um, God's bless them. You know, the amount of time it would take to take a watermark out of a center of a picture, it could be done. But you know, sure, go ahead. Zoom into two hundred percent clone. Uh, clone. I can't clone. Even imagine. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. You know, if you did that, you're you know, it's worth you taking my picture. But uh, Again, you know the the what Stefano was saying. When someone crops it out again. It depends on what you know. What are you going to do? It's like you can call them up and say cease and desist, and that's my picture, and they can argue and they can say screw you, and you know walk away with your shot, and and then I don't know what's left other than legal action. Um, but uh, you know that act of cutting it out. I mean, we you know you could take a screenshot of a picture and and easily crop it out without. Uh, you know, bringing the picture into Photoshop. So I'm not sure what the answer is about that. Like, I'm not sure what you, you do. It, it, it To me, it depends on... I had... Actually, it just came up. Um, I posted a picture on Instagram, which I've started again. It's a whole nother show, by the way. <laughs> um, and a local blog in my neighborhood, which I have a relationship with, they used my picture to highlight a page of news summaries. And I scrolled down the page and I didn't see my credit any place on the page. And I just emailed them and I said, hey, you know, um, I'm happy that you wanted to use my picture to highlight my page, but you didn't put a, you know, my credit on there. And I don't have a watermark. I mean, if I had the watermark, it might have eliminated this, but I didn't want the watermark on the picture. And I just emailed them and I said, look, you know, please give me credit or just, you know, take the picture down, you know. Um, and they reposted the picture uh, with a credit. So, so, so step one, ask nicely, because a lot of the time that might help. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's like well, you know, if you don't want your picture on that site, you know, it's a picture of a humpback whale, and it's on a whaling site where people are killing whales, and you say, well, I don't want that there. That's a whole other thing, you know, and get your picture off, you know, regardless of whether you have a watermark on there or not. But I think talking to the person or or entity first is always a good first step in finding out what their, you know, what their motivation is. Um, that's I'm probably exceeding the topic here, but. Uh, watermarks but I mean watermarking is about protecting your picture um, in some way I think giving you credit and, the, and the, what Allison was talking about uh, that's an interesting scenario like 
it wasn't a client. It was her family. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how to reply to that specifically other than maybe talk to your mother-in-law. <laughs> it's like have a little family meeting. Yeah, I don't know. To, to me, that again strikes me as a place where you, you would watermark it as a carrot rather than a stick. Just make it easy for people to give you credit. You know, if they do nothing, they have done the right thing. Yeah, but then I would argue that, you know, should be putting all that information into your metadata anyway so that yeah, the picture – metadata. Huh? People don't read metadata unless they're photography. Well, sure, but it – I get you're right, yes. But you should have the metadata there anyway besides the watermark because that's, that's another way for people who want to get in touch with you um, how yes. they can find your information. Probably a lot more information that you could put on, in metadata than you can on a watermark, at least reasonably. That's true, actually, because that, that's actually a very good point. The, the, I suppose it's the ultimate invisible watermark, the metadata, because um, I have my email address, uh, copyright information, and stuff like that all in the metadata of my images so that people, if they want to, can reach out. Yeah, and as a, as a point of knowledge, though, I think if you're going to post your pictures on Facebook, the pictures get uh, – the, water, the um, metadata gets stripped. Because they so. reprocess the pictures. They do, and they don't include the metadata, which is a real pain in the keister. Well, it um, is and it isn't, because if you're using an iPhone and you've forgotten to turn off geotagging, maybe it saves a lot of people a lot of problems. That's true. I didn't think about that. but That's yes. no reason to take out copyright information, though. Although, of course, Facebook's terms of service, I think, pretty much say, we own it now. Ta-da. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, when we talk about metadata, there was a, there was a nice website uh, called lenstag.com, and you can put... You can upload, um, you can actually create your own profile. You can put your um, uh, camera details there, including a serial number. Mm-hmm. And apparently when you take a picture, also uh, a camera records its serial number in the metadata. So once you, once you have your profile set up, once you verify your, your camera gear, also including lenses, uh, this website goes through different social websites like 500px, Flickr, etc., etc., and they pull information. They tell you on which websites your pictures are on. So if uh-huh. you can, you can happen. For example, you can easily find, and that serves two purposes. One is that you can see if someone uses your picture, or if your camera gear gets stolen, then you can also <laughs> see that someone uh, has been posting uh, pictures taken with your camera uh, online. That's interesting. C- could you send me that link, and I'll pop it in the show notes for people. Sure, I will. That sounds cool. Um, to, to get a little closer back to Alison's original question, ju- I just want to, you know, if you are going to watermark, think carefully about how, because uh, uh, as everyone has said here, it's very easy to end up making it so that no one wants to look at your pictures anymore. Not because your picture is necessarily not any good, but because your watermark is just in your face. Um, I have a sort of a rule if I'm browsing through Flickr, if I see your watermark in the thumbnail view, I'm not clicking any further. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, um, again, there are people who post their pictures with a watermark across the, you know, front of the picture, the whole picture. And, like, I would only do that if I was sending someone some pictures to preview. Like, these are my pictures. You you know, you want, you're interested in them. And, you know, I'm going to put the watermark maybe very lightly across it, but, like, you know, just as a protection, maybe I don't know them so well. But, like, if I'm posting pictures on Flickr or Instagram or Facebook, Facebook generally, I'm not going to ever put a watermark if I do across the center of the picture. It's going to be off to the side. It's going to be small. It's going to be light. It's going to have 
probably just my name on it. I'm not going to put my website information because someone could do a search for me and, and Google and find me. You probably also want to avoid, you know, bright primary colors if you're designing yourself a watermark. I mean, yeah, I tend to use. I mean, I'm I'm processing my pictures in Lightroom, and they have very nice watermark capabilities when you can customize. And you know, I just use a basic clear sans serif font uh, typeface, and you know, I I I adjust the opacity um, of that watermark depending on the picture. Yeah. Um, and I might actually look at the picture and try to figure different places to put it. Because sometimes on the bottom left, you can't put a very light watermark because there's something light there. So I might change the color of it. Um, so the watermark might just change depending on the picture. Um, and if you're posting, I know if you're posting pictures with the iPhone or probably any kind of mobile device, there's a, there's a lot of apps that you can get that will watermark, help you watermark a picture from the phone itself. Oh, so um, it'll take the picture from your photo roll thing, put a watermark on on put back yeah. a second copy is it yeah it'll put back uh, yeah a second copy I mean, you might want to test them out because some of them don't really re re-save the picture in good quality but there's some that are that are out there i mean i, I don't want to mention them there's probably too many of them but uh, they exist uh, they exist and it's something i keep on my phone all the time so if i do want to watermark while i'm mobile i can do that very easily so I think one of the coolest things I've seen watermark is uh, now there was a photographer contacted when he did this for a couple of weeks and then seemed to stop because it was probably too much work. But he would find a place in the photograph where text could naturally exist, like a road sign or something, and then skew his watermark so that it was in the correct plane that it looked natural and then pop it on. And then really you would have to be bloody careful if you were stealing that picture to go and find where he had hidden that text. That was rather cool. But it is. It sounds like a it sounds like a one off kind of thing though, and then and yeah. then your watermark becomes part of the picture. It's like you're, I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure, it was kind of cool because you know, it was a picture yeah. of a street, and then one of the bars was just called you know so and so photography. I think I saw, I think I saw that, and he put his name on the side of a ship too, or someone did at least. Yeah, yeah. another photographer did that. So, it, you know, it, it, it's a lot of effort, but. Maybe. So I think going going back to Alison's questions, mm-hmm. maybe her problem is not about watermarking, but the problem is with the mother-in-law, because knowing that some <laughs> mother-in-laws, mother-in-laws well, you do. But no, I know I have I have a great mother-in-law, but knowing how some mother-in-laws can be, they can even go a mile, an extra mile, and learn Photoshop just to edit out your watermarks. <laughs> that that will be a determined mother-in-law. Yeah, Allison just offered to sign the print. Go go to their house with a sharpie and sign the sign the canvas oh. yourself. That's the way around it. Yeah, yeah. The strange thing is sometimes uh, if people would just email me, since my my information is in, is on the picture, mm-hmm. if they would email me and ask me, can we use uh, the image without a watermark? Well, chances are nine out of ten, I would say yes, go ahead. But no, they they don't even try to do that. They just uh, cut it off and reuse it anyway. If, yeah, no, it's oh, sorry. I was gonna, if there's a commercial organization, it might be worth finding a lawyer to, just to send them a cease and desist letter. You know, there's no need to even go any further initially. I don't know if you need a lawyer to create a cease and desist letter. I think you can just make one up yourself or find one online and have it. I mean, because once once a company or something like that receives a letter from a lawyer, you've already sort of you've escalated to you know several. Uh, levels okay, yeah. higher. So you I know? Guess step one is a friendly letter. Step two is a letter from a lawyer. 
maybe one, maybe step one to two and three are letters from you, just seeing how they respond. And then if there's the, like, that you're just closing the door on you, then maybe you get the lawyer at that point. But my, my thought process behind this is like, you know, if, if, unless it's so obvious that they're, you know, they're going to, you know, steal your work and not give you money and they're not going to reply, yeah, you know, escalate. But, once you start getting the lawyers involved, you're going to start. You know, how much is that worth to you? And they're, they're you know, they're not going to look at you and say, "Well, it's a, you know, you're trying to get 150 bucks or 200 bucks." You're know, like, we're still going to charge you 300 dollars an hour. You know, so. I, I, yeah, and I guess if if you're going up against a large corporation, they have lawyers on retainer. Yeah. You probably don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having been through the law process and trying to get someone to small claims court, I, it's not something I would recommend. It was a lot of stress. Um, and it wasn't ultimately, you know, worth the therapy bills. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lawyer bills and therapy bills. Oh yeah, yeah. But I, I wanted to go back to, again, to Allison again with the, she said um, her mother-in-law made a canvas. And there's a practical part of this too. Mm-hmm. Um, is that if you put a watermark, you know, it's possible that Allison could put a watermark on the corner of the picture. Uh, and then when her mother-in-law went to make the canvas, that might have gotten cropped out during the process of making the canvas because the way that process is, you have to sort of extend the edges of the image and then the image has to wrap around the the frame of the canvas. So even if she did watermark it, the watermark might be hidden on the back or it might not even be in the picture. So, Or even if you it, just mat an image, if you, if you print it out normally, mat it and yeah. frame it, the, the watermark could be below the mat. Yeah. So, you know, putting a watermark on it might not necessarily give anybody the credit that they want or deserve, depending on how the image is going to be presented. If it was on a website, that's one thing, because you usually don't crop for a website. But anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it just popped in my mind. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fair point. Any, any other thoughts on this, or do we, do we move along to question the second? I would sure. silence sure. as a second yeah. for moving yeah. on. <laughs> Stefan, this question's from you, so will you do me the honors of reading it to save me having to read out loud again? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's the one uh, uh, concerning uh, when I was on holidays, I yes. took a long exposure shot, and um, it was uh, in the evening, uh, sunset on the, on the beach with some water. But when I got home, uh, uh, I processed the images, I put them on in, in aperture, and I noticed uh, dots in the image, some white dots, some red dots, some blue dots. And uh, at first I thought that they were stars, but when I looked closely, they also appeared in the, in the water. So um, in that case, you would have a reflection of a star in the sky and a star in the water, but there was no corresponding star in the sky to be a reflection. So I was wondering what was causing this, and... Uh, Bert mentioned it. Uh, it could be something like hot pixels. So I was, I was wondering, what are hot pixels? How do they get in my image, and can I get rid of that? Aha! Well, <laughs> can you I that jump at that, Antonio? So off you go. <laughs> well, there's, there's, yes. Yeah, so I'm dealing with this right now on one of our video cameras at uh, the place that I work at. And they have actually a dead pixel. So there's, there's hot pixels. There's dead pixels. And there's stuck pixels, I think. Stuck pixels? Stuck, yeah. Well, I, I, let me see. I'm going to put them in order of uh, best to worst. The best is a hot pixel. The medium is stuck pixel. And the worst is a dead pixel. Uh, okay. A dead pixel is a pixel that's just dead. So um, it's always which black. Was, it's always black or, yes, it's, or, um, yeah, black. It might be red sometimes. I don't know. Um, it might be white. 
I, I don't know if it's always black. Um, it, it, it's always the same pixel. It's always the same overall. pixel. Right. You know, when you used to get a while back when the LCD monitors were starting to take off, you'd get a lot of, hmm. you know, you'd buy this thing and had a lot of pixels on it because it was, you know, big screen. And every now and then you see a little, you know, one that would be actually mine on my screen were green. Um, they were running green and they were dead. Like there was nothing I could do to get rid of that pixel. Um, there was no power going to it or something like that. Or it was just it was gone. I think I was just seeing the backlight of the LCD. So basically, uh, show through, yeah. Physically broken. Physically broken, and uh, actually, when I bought my first Power Book G4 Macintosh, so I'm dating myself. I had like uh, two dead pixels on it. And I brought it back to Apple, and they were like, "Nah, it's fine. We we consider it um, a return if you had five. So those were <laughs> pixels that were manufactured, and they were bad, and sometimes cameras have that, too. Like, there's a sensor's got, you know, especially when you've got um, huge megapixels and sensors, there's all these pixels on them. There's millions of them. Um, I'm surprised that more of them aren't dead, considering yeah, the size of If you think about it, they have a, a failure rate of 0.001%. That's still a lot of pixels. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of sensors they're going to throw out, too, when they're, when they're testing them. But, so a dead pixel can't come back. That's, that's gone. Uh, I'm going to jump up to the first one, which is what Stefan, I think you have, is a is a hot pixel, which is when you're doing long exposures, the sensor is on for a long time and it's generating heat, and um, it ends up showing up the same as a as a dead pixel. It ends up being a spot on your sensor, but these tend to only show up when you do long exposures because long exposures expose the sensor to more heat and um, I don't know the physics of why so, so a pixel is So it's like a nearly not. dead pi- It's a struggling pixel, and if you make it work too hard, it goes, oh, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so hot pixels, will they'll um, show up over time, and they'll disappear over time. Um, I had one on my Nikon D7100, and it only showed up when I was doing long exposures or when I was doing high ISO pictures. So the high ISO is basically gaining up the the sensor, so it's putting more electricity in it, so it's making it hotter. So what, and, I, and I was doing video, too. It would show up in my videos as well. And then at some point, it just disappeared. They don't have it anymore. Would they so, be only red, blue, and um, green, not white? Well, I think on a dead pixel, it's white because that pixel is not working, so I'm not sure if it's showing through the backlight, which would be white. Yeah, but hot pixels. I think they're the only display. Oh, in hot three pixels. Colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hot mm-hmm. pixels. Yeah, I had mine was red. It was a it was a yeah, nasty you, red pixel. Because every pixel in our camera is actually red, green, or blue, and then they're laid out in a sort of a matrix that makes our photographs look like color when you put a non-sharp mask on it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so if one individual pixel is just going to one hundred percent, then it's going to be perfect green, perfect blue, or perfect red, which. Which is why I think when Stefan, you were describing your image, you were talking about you know blue dots and things like that, and that that mm-hmm. sort of triggered my brain yeah. to go. That sounds like a pixel went is stuck at a hundred percent. And one of the things I had read a while back when I got this when I had this stuck pixel or hot pixel on my D one hundred was like the sorry D seventy one hundred was to do some very very long exposures, like to leave the sensor on for a while, but not actually take a picture. Like, like, put the camera on live view. I think I would put it on live view for, like, five or ten, as long as possible. 
and it was trying to like you know, almost like burn it out like to get it to uh to disappear and eventually it did disappear i don't know if it was because of that because i did that technique or not but um it, it, it did go a recommended away. solution is it well it worked for me you know i'd want a recommendation yeah <laughs> i'd want to look it up i mean i don't think it's going to do the sensor any more harm um but you know uh, a hot pixel or a stuck pixel is something that probably will um like if you had a dead pixel it would show up long exposures or daytime exposures it's gone but a hot pixel is going to show up only when you're doing these long exposures and i think that's something that can actually go away after time at least that's been my experience um the, the second part of your question Stefan, was what do you do about it um, yes it, I have some experience in sort of the astronomy end of things uh, before I even get into photography, and it's very common if you if you're doing nighttime work for you know using CCD sensors to have this kind of problem where you have you know hot pixels, dead pixels, whatever. And the way that in astronomy you deal with it is that you you take if you're going to do a 15 minute exposure of some galaxy, you do a 15 minute exposure with the lens cap on the telescope. Then you do your 15-minute exposure of the thing you're taking your picture of, and then you subtract the dark frame, as it's called, from your final image, and all of those hot pixels just get sucked out. That just I takes twice as long to do everything. Because you would probably have the hot pixels on the, when the lens cap is on, on there as well, then. Exactly, because they're just ah. they're on, you know? So, so they just subtract out, and you're left with the real image. But that is time-consuming, because you've got to do everything twice. Some cameras do that automatically. With the noise reduction features. Yes, I was just going to say, so long exposure noise reduction is basically that idea. But again, it means that when you're taking your picture, it takes twice as long. So you do a 30-second exposure, and then after that, the camera does another 30-second exposure for the purpose of subtracting out the the noise. So it's... Hmm. But, if the, but if the... Hmm. Well, the hot pixels say put, you see, so you can subtract yeah, it. Yeah, that's nice. what I'm saying. It's like a, a hot pixel might actually... Or dead, well, dead pixel will definitely stay put. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if a hot pixel will actually be subtracted. I think the problem, if you use that, then uh, your picture might not be as sharp as you would like it to be if your camera processes and denoises that in the camera. Uh, that's what I have experienced. I prefer to denoise and do all the corrections in, in Lightroom myself. Because yeah. obviously, if, if there's one or two, you know, if there's a handful of these, 20 or 30, and they're annoying you, the uh, clone tool will take care of them quite nicely. Yeah, that's how I, I remove them as well. Can Can I ask a question uh, for yeah. those doing the astronomy? Would you only have to take one picture of um, one dark picture that would apply to all your other shots, or or do the we pixels would do one a night. change? So you'd start off and you'd do your dark frame, and then you'd consider that one done for the night, and then you'd do your imaging. Right. And then we also, and I can't remember why we used to do this. We also used to do a white frame, which is where you'd basically put. A diffusion material over the front of the telescope and expose perfect white as well as perfect black. And there was a reason for doing both, but I don't remember. So then that you're just doing the one dark slide and then every other exposure that you're doing is like, okay, well, I'll just take that one dark slide and, and fix it in Photoshop. Whereas if you're using noise reduction in the camera, then every time you take a 30-second exposure, you're taking another 30-second noise reduction exposure. Plus, you're also degrading the quality of the picture, as Conrad mentioned. Yeah, and I, I think in general, cameras are pretty 
you know, the, the computer and the camera is pretty limited. I think you're, my belief is that you're better off doing your post-processing outside of the camera where you have more control. I, I think actually, I'm just I'm trying to remember back because it has been over 10 years since I've done any of this stuff, but I'm pretty sure you had one dark frame per length of exposure. So if you were do if you were going to do all one minute exposures for the night, you would just do your one dark frame and be done with it. But if you were going to do some ones, some tens, some fives, you'd have to have a dark frame for each, if memory serves. So it's probably astronomers screaming into their iPods now as I'm getting it all wrong. But that, that's how I remember it. Um, and of course, the other see these things, you don't normally notice them because in real life. Just about everything is not perfectly one color, so if there's a couple of pixels the wrong color, it just looks like texture. It's just at night, there they are. Or if you're, you know, if you're photographing a solid black surface or something. I only had them on uh, on one image, I, I believe, on the last image, which was a uh, uh, really when when it was already dark, so uh, a high ISO and I think thirty seconds exposure. And on that single image, I had the the hot hot pixels. It's definitely the case that low low light and high ISO and long exposure, those three factors are really prime breeding ground for, for the effect. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I've actually, I, I do a fair bit of long exposure stuff, and the only time there were a problem was when I did a 15 minute light trail as a single exposure. And now I know why people stack them instead of doing them as one. Because all the real stars become these nice big long arcs, and all your hot pixels are like these stars that refuse to move look ridiculously <laughs> stupid so uh, that, that's why actually when you see a beautiful star trail image it's usually a stack of multiple images combined so that you don't have all these horrible noise problems creeping into your exposures hmm. um, do, we, do we also I'm sort of stretching Stefan's topic a little but uh, Maybe it's worth talking about, but if you're doing this kind of stuff, your hot pixels might be a problem. If you have dead pixels, they're obviously always a problem. But another issue you're going to amplify at this kind of occasion is noise. And so if you're going to do any sort of long exposure night stuff, you're going to have to deal with noise. And maybe this is an excuse to to dive into that area. Does anyone have much experience apart apart from myself with, with that kind of stuff? Well, that would be a great opportunity for me to promote my uh, night photography workshop right now. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I do have experience with, with long exposure night photography. And um, to answer your question in terms of noise, um, one thing is always, I, I should always in low ISO, 100 or 200. Yeah. And uh, there is also, so there there is one, ISO can be one part of noise. Hmm. Uh, the second part of noise can be a uh, long exposure. But uh, from what I have read uh, when I was doing some research uh, on that is that in modern cameras, you can only get long exposure uh, noise uh, when you expose really long, like five minutes, for example. Uh, so that has, and I have also experienced, I never experienced real problems with long, long exposure no, uh, noise um, when I was even shooting, you know, two or three minutes uh, exposures. Yeah, my experience is the only time I ran into it was when I went for 15 minutes just to see what would happen. And the answer was, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might just want to add, the noise levels are going to, be different on on every camera depending on the size of the sensor. Yes. 
So yeah, bigger... some camera, you know, we're talking about like, I just want to say to our audience, like we might be right now just talking about DSLRs, but if you're doing like long exposures with, you know, smaller cameras, you might get a lot more noise much faster than when you're using a DSLR. Yeah, because that's actually an interesting point. So I, you know, I, I do a fair bit of stuff at, at night, uh, usually Starscapes because I don't do the big zoom in thing because that gets hard. And I remember a friend of mine joined me for an evening. So the two of us were out, same sky. Same sort of exposures. And he was using a micro four thirds camera. And he was fighting noise an awful lot more than I was at similar ISOs and similar everything, really. And it was just that his physical sensor was smaller, but he had about the same number of megapixels, which means that every individual pixel just kind of has to be smaller. And so it collects less photons, and so it's more prone to noise. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm shooting with a lot in my street photography. I'm shooting with this Fuji X20, which I don't know how big the sensor is. I don't think it's micro four thirds, but it's you know it's a small sensor, and I I get a lot of noise very fast um, with it. I just tend to use it for like well, it becomes grain in my picture. I mean, there's noise where it can be distracting, and then there's texture in the picture which can actually help create the shot that I want. So. Um, you know, like I might not go out and shoot stars with my Fuji X20. I'll go and shoot that with my, you know, Nikon D100. And but that's not even a full-frame sensor. I'd prefer a full-frame sensor because it's the light-gathering capabilities on the bigger sensors are, can tend to be a little bit better than the smaller sensors. So, and to avoid that issue of noise altogether. Yeah, makes sense. Does the, the lens actually matter to uh, get less or more uh, noise on long exposures? Well, I suppose the lens matters because if it's a faster lens, meaning if it's got a wider opening, like if you're shooting stars with a with a with a lens that the f-stop is 1.8, then your exposure won't necessarily be as long, and so by not having as long of an exposure, you could probably avoid some noise issues. I mean, it's probably very minor, but it's, it's indirect, really, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's an indirect, but it you know, it I mean, I wouldn't want to use a lens that the minimum you know f-stop. I mean, if I was shooting stars and I could. I would want to use a lens that had a minimum f-stop of five six, when I can use a lens that was one eight. I mean, there's a that's a big difference. I mean, that wouldn't be so subtle. You see, you say that, and I definitely would have agreed with you a few years ago. But all of my recent star stuff, almost all of it, is done with a lens that has a lowest f number of four, and it comes out beautiful. I guess I'm just talking about in terms of like the length of exposure time. I mean, you probably have other factors. I mean, your, your camera's doing, you know, you're doing some processing. Um, I mean, it's the, the lens is, is one, you know, um, ingredient in the whole recipe, I think. But I, I guess, so the answer to your question, Stefan, is not directly, but it may make it easier to avoid things that do make noise directly. Okay. Or and, uh, and, uh, while on the topic of shooting starscapes, uh, is it true that you, you should uh, turn off the image stabilization on your lenses to get better results? If yes. You fix, if you fix it on a, on, a, on a tripod and you aim it at, a, at the sky to shoot some stars, should you turn off uh, image stabilization or, or not? That's, uh, because I heard you sh- it should be better when uh, image stabilization on the lens is turned off. Yes, usually... usually w- I myself, I hardly ever use image stabilization. Uh, well, that's that's the for Canon users or VR uh, vibration reduction for Nikon users. I always have it off, especially when shooting long exposure on on, on the tripod. 
one thing is that it, it a bit delays um, the shutter. So there was a small delay between the time you, you press the shutter speed and uh, when the, actually the, the mirror in DSLR uh, moves and when the picture is taken. Um, so that's one, one part. Uh, the second part is that um, when the image stabilization or VR is turned on when you take a long exposure picture, then the camera constantly tries, tries to see uh, and measure uh, the shake in the camera, and that can also create a bit unsharp uh, picture at the end. Well, it's trying to compensate for movement, but there is no movement, and so any, any, anything it does is making it worse. You know, mm-hmm. If it misreads slightly and decides, oh, I need to compensate, well, it's wrong because it definitely doesn't need to compensate because there really is nothing moving. So, yeah, turn it off. I, w- I would definitely say turn it off as well. Um, and just in general, when turning it off when you have the camera on a tripod, no matter when. Yes, actually. Like, it doesn't yeah. have to be long exposure. If you're in the daytime and you got your camera on a tripod, putting the image stabilization in really makes it weird. <laughs> well, yeah, because <laughs> the, the camera, bless its cotton socks, is doing its best to counteract non-existent vibrations it's right yeah. Yeah. um just while we're on the the the, the topic of, of dealing with sort of the low light issues um conrad when you're when you're doing your astrophotography do you post process through some sort of noise reduction plugin well my my night photography is night it's not astrophotography uh yeah, it's, it's usually light, straight right? yeah sure um i use uh i'm a lightroom user. So I use uh, the built-in um, noise reduction in Lightroom and the current version, which is I believe 5.6, um, has quite good, at least for for the way I use it, uh, I believe it's quite good. It has quite good uh, noise reduction. And I'm kind of, sat- I'm, I'm very actually satisfied with it. So I use the built-in uh, noise reduction in Lightroom and that's it. I'd like to Add to that. Mm-hmm. I, I also, uh, every um, version of Lightroom, the noise reduction has gotten um, a lot better over time. Uh, so for global noise reduction, I do use Lightroom. But sometimes I use um, the Nick filter Define, D-F-I-N-E, for uh, additional noise reduction. Because one of the things it lets me do is do noise reduction in, in specific areas. So... Like if I want to, often I find the sky in my picture can have a lot of noise. Um, but the rest of the picture, you know, if it's a landscape or buildings or something like that, you don't really notice the noise or it actually helps the picture. But um, I might want to do some effects where if I do it globally in Lightroom, uh, the noise will also um, get enhanced in the sky. So the nice thing about Define, and it does mean going out of the, you know, raw image to create a TIFF. But I usually leave that for the last, you know, maybe the close to the end of my processing. If I want to just sort of target the sky, because the sky, like a nice blue sky, maybe I don't want any noise in the sky. I can target just those colors and remove the noise just from the sky. So I'll use that in addition sometimes to the built-in noise reduction in Lightroom. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Topaz denoise. And, and again, like you, Antonio, I often do the denoising on just parts of the image. Uh, skies needed a lot, and you know, train. I do a lot of railway photography, and uh, trains are generally painted in gloss paint, and gloss paint should not look speckled. If, if gloss paint looks speckled, there's something wrong. So I, you know, if I need to denoise, I will denoise the train particularly. But at the same time, the train is probably flying through some countryside because I live in rural Ireland, 
And trees really don't like being denoised. Trees are supposed to have lots of teeny tiny little detail, and if you run a denoise over them, they look like fluffy trees, and trees aren't fluffy. So I will tend to avoid denoising my trees and denoise the sky and the train and, and leave it at that, and that tends to give me the nicest results. Yeah, it's the same thing with my, when I shoot urban landscapes. Exactly the same. I mean, buildings, there's, you know, especially at a distance, there's bricks and there's windows and there's trees mixed in. And running a denoise on that just makes it look, I make it plastic buildings, especially um, if the buildings are far away. And you want that frequency of the brick to at least sort of, you know, you may not see it in the picture, but you want to feel it. Denoising will just eliminate it and turn them into, you know, concrete buildings rather than brick buildings. Yeah. No, yeah. It, it shouldn't look like you've been denoising. Then you've done it wrong. No. Yeah. And some cameras, I mean, again, it's a, you know, it's, and I thought maybe at some point we could talk about this, about like different equipment for different, um, like I wouldn't necessarily shoot landscapes uh, where I want to make sure I get the least amount of noise with a, a teeny tiny camera. I might use a bigger camera for that. But if I'm out in the street and stuff like that, you know, using a smaller camera where I'm not so concerned about the noise might make a, you know, make a big uh, difference. So, you know, using the right equipment for the for right, the subject. For the I, yeah. I think actually that we, we should save that topic because that actually is quite an interesting topic. Um, it's a good rationalization for buying lots of equipment, which photographers <laughs> need to have rationalizations every day. Oh, well, I need this camera. You talk to your wife, I, I, but I really need this camera because... But it, you know, it yet again shows that there's no such thing as the best camera, right? It's, it's, the, you know, it's the camera that's most suitable for doing what I need to do rather than the global, this is the best camera, period. That's, that's nonsense. Yeah. I think Although the main problem I'm, is that when you when you when you think you got the best camera and then you go on the job on an assignment or even you do your personal project and then you find out that the camera has flaws, and I think the problem is that if you should know you should know uh, the the limitations that your camera has. Yeah. Yeah, because if you don't but, know what it what it can't do, you may get yourself into all sorts of trouble. But speaking about noise, some of the new the two new cameras that have come out from Nikon and Canon the uh the what is the D750 and the the new Canon what is it the 7D Mark II mm-hmm. in terms of noise reduction or like using high ISO mm-hmm. with very little noise I've only seen a couple of pictures very fast but it looks like you know you know, I'm imagining at some point in the future where, you know, this conversation will be moved where we, you know, we'll be talking about making long exposures and there won't be any noise in the picture, just naturally. That'd be nice. Actually, I, we have another question, which I wasn't sure if it quite fit with the show. So I didn't put it in our official show notes, but I think actually you might be able to answer this, uh, Antonio and, and maybe Conrad as well. Um, so Philip Holloway sent in a question. Um Hi, Barton guests. Uh, great show. Nice to hear different styles of photography podcast. Uh, my question is, if you were a Canon user, which I know you're not, uh, do you think Canon has done enough in the new 7D Mark II to make it a better camera at higher ISO? Uh, I've used the Canon 7D for many years now and very rarely go above six, uh, 640. Yes, I do pixel peep. Uh, dragonflies. Okay, so that, that's sort of the gist of it. So is that actually, I mean, I can't answer that question, but is, is that something any, anyone on the panel can comment on? 
I can't definitively. I mean, I've just skimmed through it because I, I tend to spend more my attention on the Nikons. Um, sure. But, you know, everybody's like, uh, you know, at Fotokina, is that the name of the event in Germany? Yes, she like, is, yes. Yeah. Oh, this is the camera everybody was waiting for. I'm like, well, what about the Nikon? <laughs> everybody's talking about the Canon. Like, this is the one we've been waiting for. The Nikon just came out with a really good one. So I'm like, you know, angry at that. But uh, I, I think I've just skimmed through some not pixel peeping, but like, you know, web page versions of like what the 7D looks like at high ISO. Mm-hmm. And just from what I saw without zooming in, it, I, I'm impressed. I mean, it, it looks like a camera that will be shooting in, you know, in places where your eyes won't be able to even see the light. I mean, it just looks, it looks, and it looks like the pictures are decent, at least at web page size. I, I wasn't seeing a lot of grain until I can't remember what the shut, what the ISO was. It was very high up. It was like past, it might've been past a hundred thousand. Maybe it might've been 50,000 or a hundred thousand. I mean, whatever it is, 128,000 something or other, five, you know, 51,000. But I didn't see that much grain, so uh, I'm going to bet that those those new sensors are are pretty good. And I don't know if the Canon. I don't think it's a full frame sensor. Uh, the seventy. The I don't know if it, I don't think it's a full frame sensor. The five D is, but I think the seven D isn't. But you, I could be wrong. Logic D seven should be better than five, but Logic has nothing to do with cameras. <laughs> I think the seven D when it first came out was just a smaller version of the five D. Um, but it's just not with the full frame. Anyway, I'm not a Canon guy, so I can't speak for that. So I thought the se- the 70 was a full frame as well. Is it? <laughs> I, this is maybe I think developing so. into the blind. Being blind. <laughs> yes, I do I, know I, that the Nikon 750 is a full frame. Um, which you know, I'm not sure about Nikon's naming conventions of what they're doing, but um, the the 750 is a full frame sensor. Well, the, and that, uh, that also looks good at low, low light, too, by the way. Very good. And actually, you know, some of the new Sony cameras, too, actually look pretty gosh darn good. So I'm not going to limit it to just Nikon and Canon. I think, you know, Sony seems to be doing really good at their, with their sensors for low light. Cool. So I guess we do think that the 7D is doing at least a decent job. The 7D Mark II is doing mm-hmm. at least a decent job. I would say that just off the top of my head, yeah. If I was going to buy a Canon, if I was, I would probably buy one. I'd probably buy a 7D. Okay. That's also a good recommendation. Um, and Anyone else want to chime in on that? It's not quite the usual style of question we do on this show, but I figured it fitted into the national, natural flow of the conversation. So uh, thank you for sending it in, Philip. I hope you're still enjoying the show, even though I said mean things about your question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say, like, often, like, you know, as my opinion, like, Every version of a camera that comes out seems to be better than the one that was previous. I mean, in better, that's not the right word to say because that makes it like, well, why should I buy the old one when the new one comes out? You might get some really good deals on the 7D because the 7D Mark II came out. And that doesn't mean that the 7D is a bad camera. It just means the technology between the two has has changed. Um, You know, someone... Someone's trying to convince me. I mean, I want to buy the new Fuji um, X. I would like to buy the new Fuji X100T that just came out. And they're like, well, why don't you buy the X100S? Like, but the T is the new one. And it's like, but, you know, the other one, the price will be dropping. And what's the big difference? You know, like sometimes the differences between the cameras are very incremental. But certainly every time a new model comes out, they've applied new technology to it. So that might be the kind of technology that you want. 
And therefore, well, it might make sense. But if you don't actually need that technology, you might think, well, maybe I don't need the, the newest camera. I don't need the big sensor. Maybe I'm not shooting, you know, astrophotography, so I don't need this, you know, capability that the new camera has. I can go away with the, with the old one. So anyway, I'm trying to say, like, you know, I didn't want to say that this is better than the other one. I just wanted to say that the technology is different. The technology is more advanced. Probably we hope. The, the way of saying yeah. it without implying yeah. quality. Just, yeah. it has moved forward. And again, it's about, I mean, again, it might be a topic for another show, but it's like, what is the equipment that you need to get the job done? I and mean, what's the minimum equipment that you need to get the job done? Yeah. So. Okay, well, that takes us to our hour, which is what I said we'd sort of aim at approximately. Um, so, uh, I think we'll call it we'll call it a show for now. So just to say that uh, next month we won't have a Q and A show. We'll be back. It'll be a normal show next month. But we'll do a Q and A show again later in the year. And uh, if anything we've said has sparked you to you know think of a comment or a question, you can go to let's talk ie forward slash photo Q and submit it there. And then we might use it on a future question answer show. Um, thank you very much to the panel. Um, Let's, let's go in reverse order. Conrad, do you want to give people some links for where they can find you? Sure, it will be my website, uh, Conrad, K-O-N-R-A-D, Dvojak, D-W-O-J-K dot com. And my website, you can find my blog on my website, uh, as well as links to all the social networks that I try to be active in. Excellent. Uh, Stefan? Well, uh, you can find me under my name on various uh, social media websites, Stefan Lesage, and uh, uh, in our Dutch technology pod- podcast, which is called Tech45, and which you can find at tech45.eu. And just to be complete, the 7D is indeed not a full-frame sensor. It's an APS-C size. It's the 5 and the 6D uh, are full-frame, but the 7 apparently isn't. Because that's logical and sensible. Anyway. Yeah. Um, do you want to actually spell your name, Stefan? Because people may not know how to spell it unless they're Dutch. Well, my name is uh, spelled S T E F A N L E S A G E. Excellent. Antonio? Hi. So uh, thanks for having me on the show today. And uh, I can be found at uh, amrosario.com. That's my personal site. Um, I'm amrosario on Twitter and Flickr and Instagram. And I'm part of the Switch to Manual crew, switchtomanual.com. Me and Tom teaching people how to use the manual <laughs> settings on their camera and switch the numeral to manual on Twitter. That's our cool. Twitter handle. So the best place to find us, but Excellent. do find us. Yeah. Uh, just before I give my um, my links on the way out, just to remind listeners that the uh, show notes will be at letstashtalk.ie, where you'll also find two large big blue buttons on the front page called support the show. Uh, basically, I, I incur some costs about the show, and it would be nice if at some stage those costs were taken care of by not me. Uh, so if you'd like to help out, there are two ways. You can either click the PayPal button and make a once-off donation of any size that you would like to make, and they're all much appreciated. Or the other option is Patreon, which is uh, sort of a patron of the arts meets the modern internet sort of idea. You pledge a you know small amount per show. Uh, if I put out the shows, you get billed for that small amount at the end of the month, and the money goes toward you know to me to help pay for expenses. So the idea would be you know I'd say I'll pledge a dollar a show, and then if I do two shows in the month, then two dollars come out, and if I do no shows, no dollars come out. Um, so that's let's-talk.ie. So I've been your host today, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. 
You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hello, people. My name is Peter Bird, and I am the host of the Deep Look podcast. The idea behind the show is that we talk to our guests and we learn more about them, the subjects, the people, the things that shape their lives, or the things they're interested in, or the things they would possibly want to know more about. Basically, we just like to look a little deeper and see what's there and to learn. If that appeals to you, or you like that idea, or if even if you have a guest that you think we should try and speak to, then come on by and give us a go. We are part of the Stoplight Network.